0: Future Proof with Jonathan McRae.
1: Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk.
0: Hello and welcome to Future Proof the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McRae. Thanks for subscribing, downloading and rating the show. We really appreciate you helping us get the word out. If you'd like to contact us, you can email us science at newstalk.com or we're on Twitter at Talk Science. Coming up on this week's program, the amazing amount of noises that animals and plants make that we just can't hear. And is there anything right now, a product, a therapy or a potion that will give us even a slightly longer life? All right, it's time uh, to kick off by looking back at some of the breaking stories from the world of science this week. We're joined by Dr. Shane Burgood from UCD and double Dr. Lara Dungan. And Shane, I guess our first story
2: has to look to COP27 in Egypt, where things are getting scrappy already. Yeah, today starts the COP27 conference and it's organised by the United Nations and uh, it's running in Egypt until November 18th and it'll be attended by heads of states, ministers, negotiators, climate scientists, uh, climate activists, civil society representatives and crucially CEOs from 140 countries. And they're coming together um, with increasing alarm around the climate emergency and um, our failure to um, make any meaningful progress towards the 2015 Paris Agreement. Um, listeners will know that that Paris Agreement aims to limit global temperature rises um, to 1.5 degrees Celsius or just above. And we're learning um, in recent times that we're not coming close and that the, the uh, reduction commitments that individual countries are making are just not going far enough for us to meet our um our aims and so there is a a, a kind of a a mixture of um of hope when we come together because uh like this is the only way we can get through an issue like this um but there is also a sense as ts Eliot uh, said that there's only so much humanity people can take or reality rather that people can take Um, and the realities of climate change are just so enormous that it is a particularly difficult challenge for us as a species to get our heads around.
0: Yeah, I mean, we have covered on this program over the last decade the um, the slow decline into what what now must be considered palpable despair. Um, that the most recent uh, reports on climate change, the the, mo- the comments from Antonio Gutierrez from the UN uh really kind of laying out i mean he's the word doomed, which is kind of you know up until recently you sort of the idea was you just didn't spook people like that because they they would um fail to act, but this um this trajectory we're on seems to be so. Negative. That even if we meet our low enough targets, we're still going to have some extraordinary circumstances, um, extraordinary consequences for for that. And we're we're not even doing that bare minimum. So, what what do, what, you know, what can we expect? Because we're already seeing people throwing buns uh, even uh, as we,
2: as the conference starts. What what do we expect to come out of this? Like, will we get anything meaningful? Well, based on the last one in Glasgow, you, you would think not. However, um, th- there does seem to be um, a couple of reasons for hope, right? And uh, one of them is that things are are genuinely quite dreadful at the moment. So that the like mm-hmm. the, things are so bad that how long can we go on? Just kind of you know, um, as he, as Antonio Guterres said, that so many people are just acting in bad faith. They're lying when it comes to their commitments. That. Um, that governments and CEOs are saying they will do things and then not doing them. And between the various cops, we see an increasing number of climate related disasters, such as flooding in Pakistan, droughts in Europe, famine in the Horn of Africa. I could go on. And like, you know, the physics behind it all, um, the physics of climate change isn't going to allow us any wiggle room for us to Mm -hmm. kind of catch up. It's going to happen. Um, and we, we do have control over, over what we can do. So, like, we can arrest this, we can stop it. We just need to engage with the articles, think about it, and take action.
0: Yeah, and as we say many times in this program, if you have a sphere of influence, use it. There are decision makers all around us. If you have the ability to influence, um, use it. Uh, Laura, our second story, um, a slightly more positive one, uh, and it's about the incredible plasticity of the brain.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So so this is a study that came from the University of Pittsburgh. And it's looking, as you said, about brain plasticity. And that's essentially the ability of the brain to change and mold over time and maybe to adapt to, for instance, injuries or other issues. And we see, for instance, people who may have stroke in one or other side of the brain. They may, for instance, lose their ability to recognize faces or they may lose their ability to read depending on which side of the brain it's in. And what these researchers did was because of telemedicine during the COVID-19 pandemic, they were able to recruit 40 children on the average age of about 16, 17, who had had very serious surgery to their brains when they were young. The reason these children had this surgery, and the surgery was to remove, believe it or not, half of their brain. The reason they had this was because they would have had intractable epilepsy. And Mm. this would have been the, the best way to treat these children. So it's a very serious sort of end stage treatment. And these children would have all fared very well in general. And the question was is the plasticity still there when we are born? So or or, is everything laid down from before we're born? And what they did was they gave them word finding and word recognition tasks to test essentially the right side of their brain. And they gave them more facial recognition tasks to essentially test the left side of the brain. Now, remember these children only have one or other side. And what they found was these children fared about 80% as well as a control who did not have surgery. So essentially a quote unquote normal control. And this is quite amazing because in elderly people who do say have a stroke on the left-hand side of their brain, they do have huge problems with facial recognition often, and, you know, depending on exactly where the stroke is, and and it often doesn't come back. So to know that children who are, are, you know, sometimes at least a few years old have this amazing plasticity, the one remaining side of their brain can cope with almost all the normal tasks of life is really fascinating and fantastic. And I suppose now to find out how to make brains more plastic and to maybe bring this into an older age group would be really interesting. But,
0: but we know that um, the brain takes up a huge amount of energy from from the body, right? Um, if half a brain can function so well, I mean, is there any understanding as to why we need such a large brain because of the extraordinary high cost of having one?
3: Yeah, so as you said, it, it takes the brain takes about 20% of the glucose of our body. For for such a small structure in our body, that's a phenomenal, it's a fifth of all the energy. Um, and and the, these children who did have half a brain, they didn't fare 100%. So what they believe is there's a bit of neural crowding. So essentially all the neurons are fighting and jostling for position to try and do the job. So the belief is that the larger size of our brain does allow for the full function that we have. This myth that we use 10% of our brain is is complete and utter trash. It's just not real. So the the large size of our brain allows for a lack of crowding. It allows for space for these neurons to move and adapt. So we do, in general, need this large brain, which does consume a lot of glucose. But it's just nice to know that we can still function if there is damage.
0: Really, really interesting stuff. Shane, our third story has to do with making rain, I suppose, in some ways, linked to uh, our first
2: story on COP27. Yeah, the week we've just had here, all Irish listeners have been saying, really, you want to make more rain? So uh, this Mm -hmm. is work from people in the University of Reading and they published their work in geophysical research letters. And it's titled Scientists zap fog with electricity to make them rain. How cool is that? So when you, um, when you, Take water droplets and you apply electric charges, you change their properties. Effectively, you're, you're interfering with surface tension. And so you can allow droplets to stick together more easily. And so if you have a cloud, which is, a, a, you know, tiny suspended droplets of, of water, you can force them to, to join up and they will eventually overcome gravity and fall as rain. And that's that's simply mm-hmm. what this paper did I say fog as opposed to clouds because they used low um, flying unmanned or uncrewed aircraft that were that were hovering at about 20 meters above the surface and emitting various types of electric charge using ions and um, they were able to precipitate rain from the clouds. Um, it's really cool. And as you said- Hang on, when you say 20 meters, are these fake clouds? Fog, so it's f- fog is just cloud uh, at at surface level, effectively. So it's 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 the same. But, but um, well, how do they make the fog? The fog is there, so they was, s- they send the fog. It's just natural fog. Yeah. So <laughs> it's
0: not like synthetic fog or anything, because that sounds like unnecessarily complicated to do.
2: Yeah, but I wouldn't put it past scientists to to go to those extremes. But um, yeah, they just waited until it was foggy, and they sent up the little plane, and it sent out its charge, and they looked at the uh, the consequences. Now they did it in a more sophisticated way than than I'm suggesting. But effectively, that's what they did. This could be very useful in areas where there is a lot of drought, where you could um, use um, th- this this uh, like uh, mechanism to make it rain. It differs crucially yeah. from the, the the sort of use of chemicals that uh, we associate with uh, authoritarian countries where they wanted to not rain. You know, um, so famously in Beijing, uh, the Chinese sent up aircraft a few days before the opening ceremony of the Olympics to make it rain so that the atmosphere would be clear of moisture and then it wouldn't rain. Um, during mm-hmm. the opening ceremony. So it is. It isn't using nasty chemicals. It's just using electric charge. As to whether it's good or not, I, I'm not so sure that we should be interfering with the atmosphere this way, but it's an option. I mean, if we
0: could do this in a safe way and as you say, sort of make it rain the day before an Irish international or, you know, St. Patrick's Day or something. I mean, if it's going to rain anyway, helping that decision a little bit sooner could actually be really, really useful. As long as... You know, as long as you're not adding chemicals and using sort of electronic charge, as long as you could create enough of that to to generate large scale um, rainfall, I think that's pretty cool. Mm. Um, Our final story, Lara, has to do with magic mushrooms.
3: It does indeed. So the the, um, chemical component of magic mushrooms is uh, called psilocybin and that's the the neuroactive substance. And um, we've talked on the program a few times about how it's being used now in clinical trials to help treat depression. And there has been a major release of a stage two or a phase two clinical trial. It's just been published in the New England Journal of Medicine, which is a very prestigious journal. Um, And what they have done is they've looked at approximately 75 to 80 people in each of the groups. And they gave them either one milligram, 10 milligrams or 25 milligrams of psilocybin. They put on eye shades. They gave them a calming playlist and they let them sit in a room for at least six hours so that they could essentially turn their thoughts inwards. And the next day they gave them standard therapy. And that went on for a couple of weeks and then they assessed how their major depressive disorder was doing after a few weeks and they found that in the highest dosing group 30 percent of those people had gone into remission for their major depressive disorder so this is a huge breakthrough there's about 100 million people who have treatment resistant depression around the world it has a massive personal and human cost and a huge financial cost it costs about Mm. 4 billion in the uk alone every year So if this treatment could work, no matter how controversial it is, it's something that really needs to be thought about. And it's even being done in Ireland as well. Part of this trial was done in Ireland. It's done all over the world, but part of it's even being done in Ireland. There's a lot of doctors here driving this use of psilocybin. So it's really interesting. And they're going to move into phase three now. And as we know, that will be the last phase before it becomes potentially mainstream treatment.
0: Very exciting. And, and knowing the, uh, the lack of mental health support in this country, anything that works and alleviates the burden on, on those poorly funded services is extremely welcome. Shane Bergen and Laura Dungan, thanks very much. Now, we humans make a lot of noise. You only need to walk out into any city street to be, let's face it, bombarded by it. But we're certainly not the only animals making a racket, nor are we the only ones using sound to communicate. All over the planet, quacks, chirps and bellows happen all day, every day, and most of it is completely inaudible to us. So why is it so noisy and what can we learn from those sounds? Well, Karen Bacher is a fellow at the Harvard Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Studies and author of The Sounds of Life, how digital technology is bringing us closer to the world of animals and plants. She joins me now. Hi, Karen. I have to say, I was really interested to uh, to read in this book about all of the sounds that we can't hear. Um, talk me through some of the animal noises that are happening that we just don't even register.
1: Yeah. So humans, compared with our cousins on the tree of life, are actually relatively poor listeners. Above our hearing range in the ultrasonic at high frequencies, you've got all sorts of communication happening. You've got echolocation, that's bats and dolphins, lots of communication amongst different species. Even plants make noise in the ultrasound, but we are oblivious. At the lower end of our hearing range, below what we can hear in very long, low frequencies, you've got the infrasound, and there, that's the realm of elephants and whales and tigers and even thunder and tornadoes. If you could tune in to sounds this low, you'd even hear the sounds of ocean waves crashing across continental shelves. It's sort of like our planet has a heartbeat, like a drumming heartbeat. None of this we can hear, but animals can. Wow. And there are, um,
0: even amongst that list, there are some animals that we thought to be mute, and yet it turns out they are um, very vocal. One of my favourite uh, audio clips is when the first time they recorded mice being tickled and you yeah. can actually hear them giggling. But yeah. it's not just mice, there's lots of animals that we thought didn't make sound and now we've turned these sensitive microphones on them and we found they do.
1: Yeah, so humans tend to believe that what we cannot observe does not exist. So we were oblivious to most of these sounds until recently when a revolution in digital bioacoustics has produced little miniature recorders Sort of similar to the ones in your smartphone and scientists have begun putting them all over the earth from the depths of the ocean to the highest mountaintops from the Arctic to the Amazon recording all of these sounds. You can think of it like a planetary scale hearing aid and what we are learning is not only do species that, that we knew were vocal have much more complex vocalizations and interesting language, but we're also learning that some species we thought were entirely mute actually do communicate vocally. Turtles are a great example. So scientists long thought turtles didn't make any noise except perhaps in the throes of death or mating. But in fact, they make a lot of noise, very low frequency, very quiet, lots of pauses, but they do make a lot of different sounds. And amazingly, baby turtles will make sound in their shells before they hatch, communicating with one another to coordinate the moment of their birth and their mothers will be waiting in the water nearby, calling to them. Now, scientists used to think that mothers just laid the eggs and then, you know, the mother turtles just wandered off. But no, they're there calling to their babies, guiding them to safety, hiding them from predators. This actually is the first evidence of parental care in turtles. And all of this was revealed by this new science of digital bioacoustics.
0: That's so cool. We have a clip if you'd like to hear the sound of turtles communicating. So uh, this is wonderful to hear about all these different animals that are vocalising that I hadn't heard about, but uh, it does make me think about the amount of noise that we make and how that might interfere with the animals and even plants around us.
1: Yeah, so noise pollution we know is bad for humans. So we know that ambient levels of noise in any urban environment that we take for granted are actually bad for us. They raise our stress hormones. They increase cardiovascular risk. So for, for example, heart attack or stroke. They lead to cognitive impairment and they are even associated with dementia so noise pollution is bad for you it's bad for me but what we're just now realizing with this new science of digital bioacoustics is that noise pollution is incredibly bad for non-humans because many species are exquisitely sensitive to sound even much more than we are so sound can interfere with the ability to find food It can interfere with the ability to find mates. It shortens lifespans. Very loud sounds can actually kill outright. So large seismic blasts used for exploration for resources in the ocean can kill zooplankton up to a mile from the blast site. And, of course, zooplankton are the base of the ocean's food chain. Wow. So, yeah, so throughout nature... Um, industrial and machine noise has ramped up exponentially in the past few decades. And so scientists have now demonstrated this actually harms not only animals, but even plants.
0: Talk to me about that. Um, I had no idea that plants made noises. Uh, although I do remember we had an amazing feature a number of years back uh, where there was a very hypersensitive microphone put up to a, a tree and you could hear something crackling in the cells. But I didn't realize lots of plants makes make all sorts of noise.
1: Lots of plants do make noise. There are various reasons for that. Some of it could be sort of biomechanical, you know, if a, a tree is, is dehydrated, for example. Um, we also know that Certain plants make noises in frequencies we cannot hear. Corn seedlings, for example, make noises in the ultrasonic. So these high frequency sounds. Yossi Yawel in Tel Aviv did an amazing experiment. He and his team took tomatoes and tomato plants, dehydrated some of them, cut some of them up. Those plants emitted ultrasound, but different kinds of sound. And then they trained an artificial intelligence algorithm to listen for those sounds, much like a voice recognition algorithm could be trained on human voices. And the the algorithm could tell if the plant was dehydrated or stressed or had been injured. So these sounds have meaningful informational content. I'll give you another example of plants being able to listen for those sounds. Heidi Apple at the University of Toledo did a set of experiments with a very simple plant. It's a model organism in biology called Aerodopsis thaliana. That plant is so sensitive that when she played it, the sounds of insects chomping, chewing on leaves, the plant could tell the difference between that sound, which caused it to release defensive chemicals, and other sounds that were not threatening, like the sound of rain. She then played the plants two different sounds of insects chewing, but one insect was a predator, the other insect didn't eat that particular plant and the plants only released those defensive chemicals when they heard the sound of the insect that, that, that was their predator. So these wow. plants have incredibly nuanced hearing. They have little hairs all over their leaves called trichomes, just like the cilia in your ears that you are using right now to listen to me. Those cilia are picking up the sound vibrations, and they can interpret them with a high degree of accuracy and precision. So plants, actually, because they hear with their entire bodies, have a sense of hearing that's orders of magnitude more sensitive than our own.
0: You mentioned cilia there, and uh, in coral, uh, you you talk about a a really interesting experiment uh, where uh, researchers played different types of sounds to coral.
1: Yes, so to understand how remarkable this is, let me just describe coral larvae. Coral larvae are microscopic, well, to put it in layperson's terms, uh, blobs, hairy blobs, so they're little little tiny microscopic organisms, no central nervous system. They're covered in fine cilia or hairs, and they use those hairs to sense their environment. A group of researchers led by Steve Simpson at Exeter put these coral larvae in in a tank, in an aquarium style tank, and played different sounds to them in a kind of maze style setup where the larvae could choose to swim towards or away from the different sounds. So the hmm. coral larvae were able to choose which sound they wanted to listen to and they would choose the sounds of healthy reefs. So they could, the larvae could distinguish between the sounds of healthy and unhealthy reefs, even more shocking. They could distinguish between the sounds of their home reef where they were born and other reefs and they would pick the sound of their home reef and swim towards it. So wow, yeah. So so this is astounding. And to bring us back to the question of noise pollution, creates a whole level of concern because even motorboat noise can disrupt this very fine sense of hearing that coral larvae might have. In fact, there was a recent article in Science talking about how motorboat noise can even scramble the eggs of baby fish. We're now realizing that marine organisms in particular, because they sense the world through sound, which travels much farther than light underwater, those organisms are exquisitely vulnerable to noise pollution. And we've been unthinkingly throwing so much noise at them that we've been causing all sorts of harm.
0: Uh, That is another layer of depressing on top of an already depressing uh, understanding of how we are affecting the world. Um, and you know, it it does make me think about the amount of noise that we allow in our environment. Like, my my personal pet hate is the wine, the sort of fluorescent wine from fringes that people allow in the restaurants. You know, mm-hmm. absolutely
1: kills me. But leaf can, blowers, s- leaf blowers.
0: Yeah, but they're they're very occasional. Often you go to a restaurant or a supermarket and you know, that mm-hmm. yes. kill absolutely kills me. So this noise that we're generating is really difficult. But it's 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 very is it difficult to for us to identify which of our noises are. Are harmful, and what I mean, realistically, we've got a lot going on. Are, are are we able to develop policies to protect animals and and plants in the sea from from noise? Do you think is that is that work happening?
1: That work is happening. Actually, it's pretty easy to determine what noises <laughs> damage animals and plants, um, and that is well understood we've got all of the science necessary to create the protective mechanisms and the good news when we mitigate when we reduce noise pollution is the effects are immediate significant and persistent so it takes decades or or, or centuries to recover from chemical pollution which often persists in our bodies and the environment but as soon as you reduce the noise the environment recovers Mm. COVID, the global pandemic, was a really interesting time for this. Some scientists took to calling it the great Anthropause because levels of noise went back to a quieter time that we had not experienced since the middle of the 20th century. And in that quiet, animals rebounded, the songs of urban songbirds became more rich, and diverse, they had extra energy now to sing their true full songs. In the ocean, uh, whales were able to roam further and more freely because they weren't trapped in this kind of acoustic noise pollution fog that hems them in and limits you know, where they can explore. Um, so po- animal populations thrived. That was a great natural laboratory experiment, sort of wonderful side effect of a, a global tragedy. But we, we know that uh, simply by reducing noise, even relatively small amounts, we can have huge benefits. And humans are taking note, by the way, next time you're in Paris, you will see noise radar stations are now monitoring high levels of motor noise in Paris. And if your vehicle, your scooter or your car makes too much noise, you will receive a fine they're really clamping mm. down. The, the future of cities is going to be quiet.
0: Well, amen to that. Um, as someone who has got tinnitus from exposing himself to too much noise, I can see the damage that it can do um, very clearly. What about our understanding of animal communication? Now that we've turned the, the microphones up and we can hear all of this noise, has it helped us understand more about the societies and, dare I say it, intelligence of these animals and how they communicate with one another?
1: It has. And this is where the science meets a longstanding philosophical debate about whether or not non-humans possess language. Uh, Wittgenstein is famous for saying, if a lion could speak, we would not understand them. Thomas Nagel launched a, a, a very, very fiery debate several decades ago when he wrote a paper arguing that even if bats had language and consciousness, we could never understand them because their embodied experience, the umwelt, the lived embodied experience of a bat in its world, in its body, is so different than ours that interspecies understanding and communication would not be possible. Now, I think these philosophers are about to be proved wrong. And the reason is because we now have a a new set of technologies that is digital recording, and artificial intelligence, the same algorithms that can be used to develop voice recognition software for humans or translation for humans. The same technologies, essentially, that power Google Translate are now being used to recognize patterns in non-human vocalizations, decode what those mean, and then encode those sounds into computers or robots that can engage in two-way communication with other species. So researchers are building dictionaries in East African elephant, in Southern Australian dolphin, in honeybee, or in sperm whalish. And in each case, we're sort of breaking the boundary of interspecies communication. And along the way, we're finding out about the really complex ways that animals communicate. So many more animals have names, for example, individual names then we realized our human ear couldn't hear them, but our computers can.
0: I remember hearing, was it prairie dogs, had different words for different types of species and different types of predators, and I thought that was really cool.
1: In fact, many, many animals are able to uh, describe their environment with great specificity. There's been some recent research done on elephants, for example, so it turns out elephants have distinct Mm. sounds for different threats. So there's an elephant word for honeybee. Um, honeybees terrify African elephants. <laughs> Nothing will make an elephant run faster than the tiny honeybee, because they're so good at getting into those very, very you know, soft, vulnerable areas and then stinging. So elephants have a very alarming call for honeybee. Elephants also have different specific calls for different types of humans. They'll distinguish between men and women. Wow. They'll distinguish between different tribes some of the tribes which hunt elephants, others don't. So they have a, a, a sound for threatening human and another wow. sound for non-threatening human. Bats bats are even more amazing. So bats, of course, um, one quarter of all mammalian species, highly vocal. You put an, a, a, a digital recording device into a bat cave and then you, you feed that data to an AI algorithm and you start to identify hundreds of unique call types. And from this, we have learned bats hold grudges, they remember favors, they trade food for sex, they, they teach each other language. Mother bats ba- babble to their babies in a way very similar to the way human parents babble to their babies, and the babies babble back until they eventually learn to speak, adult bat. Um, bats, bats have names. Bats can distinguish between gender and individual and kin and family identity. And of course, they learn their family songs, much like birds have songs, Bats have songs, and those songs are sung to defend territory. They're a marker of culture. So bats have many of the linguistic attributes that we think of as human. We're not sure yet whether they really have the same degree of symbolic communication, but researchers are now designing experiments to test this very cool sort of iPad touchscreen devices that the bats can touch with their acoustic sonar beams. And from that, you can start determining whether they have, for example, uh, numeric competence or they can recognize shapes. So this means that the difference in language between us and other species is one of degree, but not one of kind and human exceptionalism, we can no longer lay claim to being the only species that has complex language.
0: So with animals, you get a sense, I, I suppose, if you're around them a lot as to what they need often. It's not no great mystery to me when my dog starts putting its paws up on my lap as I'm having dinner, what the dog wants. But um, using this sort of AI, could we also he- hear from our plants? I mean, my son has a dionier, um if, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, the, fly, the Venus flytrap. Mm. And um, and we just watched the little shop of horrors, and I am wondering no could we train an AI <laughs> to listen to when the v- Venus flytrap wants food, and 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 give it and play that sound clip, feed me Seymour.
1: I mean, that's that's a, a, an amazing example. I don't know if anyone's actually done the acoustic research on Venus flytraps, but obviously they should. They're such charismatic plants. Um, but in in, in general, in, in theory, the answer is yes, because each plant will make unique sounds and the AI could easily d- distinguish between, let's say, a fern and the Venus Fly trap. Now, I think the more interesting question, and in fact, Microsoft, by the way, has actually designed an app that lets you speak to your plants. It's called Florence. You can look it up. You can really? see a, a video. Yeah. I
0: have, I have a feeling like many Microsoft products, it doesn't work.
1: Uh, <laughs> it's a bit of a s- sleight of hand, I might say. I, I, I see I must, you're I having a say. problem
0: writing a letter. I see you're having a problem <laughs> talking to your plant.
1: Yeah, 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 exactly. But beyond that, um, we do face a future where within the next 10 years, we will have developed digital systems that allow us to speak to non-humans. We've already achieved this with honeybees, where Tim Landgraf, a a scientist in Berlin, has created a honeybee robot that can go into the hive and give specific commands to the beehive. It can tell the bees to stop. They'll stop. It can tell the bees where to find new nectar sources. That's actually a very complicated thing to do because bees use this sort of wild dance that's vibrational and positional and They orient their bodies to gravity and to the position of the sun because they could sense polarized light. So we've mastered this with our honeybee robots, and we can give instructions to the hive. We've broken the barrier of interspecies communication with honeybee robots. And I'm not promising that you will have a zoological version of Google Translate on your phone in the next 10 years, but we will uh, have... The scientists able to communicate with a variety of species. There's a team at MIT and Berkeley working on sperm whaleish right now, and so the ethics of that, <laughs> yes, yes, the ethics of that. I mean, scientists hope that this would create a great sense of empathy and delight. You know, learning to listen is one of the first acts of love, and through listening to the world, we'll fall in love with it again, and and maybe motivate people to do something about the biodiversity crisis. And I, I do hope that. That is the case. I, I do also worry that there are potentials for this technology to be misused.
0: Uh, I, I'm sure. And of course, in every species, there's always a, a Donald Trump. So, uh, you know, we may we may end up not wanting to speak to all of the animals. It's a really, really fascinating area and there's so much to talk about. But um, get the book uh, because it is filled with fascinating stories about different species and the technologies and where they may take us. Karen Bacher is a fellow at the Harvard Radcliffe Institute of Advanced Studies and author of The Sounds of Life, how digital technology is bringing us closer to the worlds of animals and plants in bookshops. Now, Karen, thanks for your time. Thank you. There is a growing field of science and industry looking at how to prevent aging, or at least keep us living healthier for longer. Uh, Joining me now is Andrea Mayer. She's made it her life's mission. Uh, She is professor at the National University of Singapore and also is heading up the Centre for Health and Longevity. Uh, Andrea, uh, tell me a little bit about the environment at the moment. Why is Longevity is such an exciting topic at the moment, it seems.
4: I would say that not longevity is a very hot topic, but health spend is a very important topic. So the years we have on Earth without age-related diseases, at the age of 60, 60% of the population have at least two or more chronic diseases. And that's what we want to prevent. So increasing, optimizing the health span of individuals who are aging to delay the incidence of an age-related disease will help them to live happier for longer with a good quality of life and maybe is also expanding the lifespan, which are the years on earth you, you have.
0: So this is a new term to me health span. This is the the length of time that we spend on the planet healthy. There are a lot of organizations claiming to be able to turn back time. Some of them are commercial beauty companies, others are fringe um, nutritional companies. W- what can we say for sure when it comes to aging that we can do now and what do you think we will be able to do in the future?
4: There are three important domains how we can intervene to increase our health spend and maybe also extending our lifespan. The first one is lifestyle. Um, I think we can close the books that a healthy lifespan will increase and is increasing the health span of individuals by roughly eight to 15 uh, years. And a healthy lifespan, uh, sorry, lifestyle is um, eating well, good nutrition, do lots of physical exercise, good sleep quality, etc. We, we know all of this. So we can already do that. The second very important domain are supplements. We know why we age. In the last 20 to 30 years, we discovered what's going on in our cells, what's going wrong, and how supplements, how specific molecules could actually intervene with our cells to make some somebody younger, so reverse the biological aging process, or to slow down the aging process in their ways, to reduce the risk of having an age-related disease, if you start, start much, much earlier in life than we do at the moment. The third one is we have lots of drugs we give in clinical practice. I'm an internal medicine specialist, and I'm used to give lots of drugs to sick individuals. So we would like to give drugs much earlier. And these are now in trials to see if we can reverse the aging process or slow down the aging process by giving these drugs we already give for patients. But now we are giving them to aging individuals who are also sort of sick because they are aging. And examples of these repurposed drugs are, for example, metformin. I would prescribe as an internal medicine specialist to diabetics. But now we can and test if these drugs can be already given to aging individuals to reverse the aging process. Another drug is rapamycin. I would give to kidney transplant patients, which is a very potent drug to... Uh, suppress the immune system, but also this drug could interfere with the aging process and we are testing in randomized controlled trials. So at the moment, we can already reverse the aging process by really giving a better lifestyle. On the other hand side, we are testing in clinical trial supplements specific to the aging process and also repurposed drugs to make somebody younger.
0: So I want to get into the the second and third um, uh, ways we can intervene in a second. But what do we mean when we say reverse aging or prevent aging or slow down aging? Because I hear a lot about so-called biological age and that you can you can be biologically 20 years younger than you physically are. What are we talking about when we say reverse aging? What does that look like on a cellular level or what does that look like on a body level?
4: Yeah. So on cellular level, we developed clocks, which means that we are taking uh, cells or we are taking serum plasma blood from individuals and while comparing Um, the measurements of that individual comparing to individuals of the same chronological age, we can say you are either younger, you are better, or you are worse compared to your peers of that chronological age. So we have these kind of biological clocks. We, we cannot reverse chronological age, so it's not possible to reverse your, your chronological age in your passport. But what we can do is we can reverse how good or bad your cells are functioning at this moment in time and there with reversing the time of the biological clock, which means if you are two years older, for example, using a certain clock, then giving an intervention, we can reverse that biological age by a couple of years and make you three, three years younger compared to the period. So that's what we mean on cellular level with with clocks. On physical level, on clinical level, we can also measure function, which is very important. We can measure uh, the muscle strength, we can measure the muscle mass, we can measure cognition, we can measure the blood pressure, etc. So while reversing the cellular age of w- measured with a clock this should also then mean that all other organ systems in your body like your blood pressure your glucose level should go into the right direction to be younger to be better to antagonize that risk of uh, age-related disease
0: so you're saying that if we can fix the problems that are happening within our cells, so buildup of waste or a lack of function, reproduction, as we see in cancer, if we can fix that, then the processes that, that depend on cellular processes like everything I suppose that happens in our body, that should improve too. So if the cells are working better and seem younger, we should be able to respire more easily. We should be able to um, think better and, and have better cognitive function. That That's the idea.
4: Yes. So aging is not more and less than the accumulation of damage, which is not repaired. I think that's very important. And that happens on cellular level, on molecular level and on organ level. So and we see it in our skin. We, we, yeah, I have wrinkles I haven't had like 20 years ago. So it's it's nothing else that the accumulation of, of damage being not repaired uh, because of losing maintenance function and that's what we try to achieve like repairing it maintaining it better if we are giving supplements or repurposed drugs or if we are on a treadmill because our capacity of our, our human body is wonderful that there are repair mechanisms which were off but now being on and there with uh, reversing the the biological age is it theoretically
0: possible if we were able to rejuvenate these cells somehow, which I know is, is possible with some certain cells and some treatments appear to turn back the clock to near zero for, for some types of cells. Is it theoretically possible if, if we do that to cure aging or at least halt it in a person, if we were able to apply all of these therapies at once, which I'm sure is probably not possible um, at the moment, but is it theoretically possible? Is there any reason, you know, from a physics point of view that we have to age?
4: From a theoretical point of view, I think it should be possible to stop everything because there are already organisms on Earth where we are not good enough to actually show that they are aging because either it's so slow or we are not smart enough. So theoretically, yes. On the other hand, um, I- I'm not sure I'm not thriving for for a very long life. Uh, my purpose is here to be healthier, healthier, for longer mm. and it's it's not so much that the lifespan really matters but but it's the health span theoretically yes um is that the aim or should it be the aim um as some argue that it is the aim I, I doubt that
0: so let's talk about the two other types of intervention because i agree with you it seems pretty conclusive that sleep uh, diet exercise um these are the things that we know will give you a healthy longer life Where are we with vitamins? Because it seems like there are some extreme claims out there. And it seems like in America, everyone's taking every sort of of vitamin. What vitamins can we say definitely are important to uh, maintaining a healthy lifestyle? And is there a danger for people who want to be healthy to, to think that they should be taking everything?
4: I'm a scientist, so my answer will be evidence-based, and I think that's what we have to achieve in our field. So there is evidence: if you supplement with vitamin D, if somebody has a low vitamin D level, that w- that will help you to either prevent uh, diseases or to prevent mor- mortality. But that's it. So even um, <laughs> even the, the the books are really not closed if calcium etc is is good to supplement because everything you supplement has side effects and I think this also gives the power of our nutrition that we can actually choose how much vitamins we take with our food so per se we do not need any supplements at the moment at least there is not a evidence based on evidence-based medicine that any supplements really really help. I think what we have to learn in the next coming years is looking at the phenotype, looking at a certain person, how much deficiencies that person have and not just supplementing because that's what's happening at the moment. So going into a field of personalized supplementation when it's needed based on the profile of that individual.
0: So giving everyone a certain type of vitamin is not necessarily useful, but you, you think there could be benefits in the future by measuring deficiencies and then prescribing specific vitamins for specific people, and that could have a significant effect.
4: Absolutely, and then you're approaching personalized medicine. Uh, but what we don't know yet, to who should receive what, at what time, in which doses, in which intensity, in the end, for how long?
0: The third in this list of interventions you mentioned is medicine. I'm sure for some people that feels a little bit more controversial, uh, giving people drugs for conditions they don't have just yet, uh, but preventative medicine. Where are we with that uh, in terms of identifying drugs that could be given in 50s and 60s to prevent the likelihood of uh, onset of dementia or prevent the on uh, of certain types of cancer, do we have some very good candidates that should improve the, the health span of, of the average individual? Or again, is it very personalised?
4: It's it's absolutely personalized because medicine is personalized. Even if you talk to me as an internal medicine specialist, everything is personalized, how much drugs I give, at what what point in time and which combinations of, of drugs. I wouldn't agree that we would give drugs to healthy individuals. It's a little bit dependent of what you think of aging as a disease or not. We are really arguing to call the conditions based on the aging process, a disease. And I need that as a clinician, because otherwise, why should I diagnose something? And and, and I couldn't intervene, because if I don't have a disease as a physician, I cannot intervene.
0: Right, okay, but um, it, then at what point do we call someone aging as a disease? Because a, a three-year-old ages, but that's not a disease.
4: Um, so 100% of the population, if you say that aging is a elite, uh, bringing you to a condition which accumulates damage and if we could return that if we could reverse that th- that that's that's a disease or we should could interfere and of course the three-year-old is developing but the three-year-old is already accumulating damage because of the aging process while developing into adulthood so of course it's it's a little bit a a gray zone but i really think that modern medicine has to transfer much earlier into the trajectory of a life of individuals to prevent age-related diseases while targeting aging, if you want or not, as, as, as something to interfere with.
0: <laughs> well, you mentioned a number of drugs there that have clinically proven results with certain conditions but may also be useful for preventative medicine. Can you tell me a little bit about those? And are there any other candidates that might be useful to ward off the disease of aging um, that we, we aren't currently prescribing to someone who's over 55 or over 65?
4: Yeah, at the moment, we are prescribing the drugs to the ones uh, with an indication, which is given by the EMA or the FDA, so regulatory agencies. And I think that that's a good thing. What we are in at the field at the moment, doing randomized control trials to see if we can reverse the aging process while giving these drugs. And these drugs can be drugs against um, uh, diabetes, for example, GLP-1 agonists or or something like metformin, insulin, etc. But also drugs we know uh, out of our other uh, specialities, for example, rapalogs, Rapamycin, and many more. We have a list of roughly at least 30 drugs which are given in clinical practice already, which are now being trialed to see if they can reverse the aging process.
0: Uh, finally, I wanted to ask you about the Healthy Longevity Medicine Society. What is the aims of this group and what are you hoping to achieve with it?
4: So the Healthy Longevity Medicine Society is I. Uh, society for healthcare professionals, primarily for healthcare professionals to bring healthcare professionals around the world together to exchange ideas and bring the field forward. We have three aims. The first is education. We have to educate laymen. We have to educate healthcare professionals. We have to educate, I would say, politicians um, to really make the change in the transition towards more preventative uh, healthcare. We also want to become a society being known that our speciality is being accredited. So I'm an internal medicine specialist. I want to become an accredited uh, longevity medicine physician which is not the case at the moment the the second thing is uh, bringing quality to the field uh, which means that we need standards and we need guidelines to to follow um, It's not only that the trials we are doing need a certain uh, standard uh, but also the care we are providing in longevity medicine needs standards and we have standards everywhere in medicine but it's at the moment lacking in longevity medicine so that you and me know, which kind of clocks to use that people already who are who are buying these kind of services uh, from startups from businesses that they know where to invest in and whatnot and what to trust the third thing is acceleration of of knowledge so we are trying to bring like-minded people together it's not that we are trying we bring people together uh, that we build for example trial networks because we need the mass we need to speed up our system, uh, that we get results uh, in the next coming years. And, and we, we, we don't have to wait the next decades to get the results.
0: Andrea Mayer, thank you very much for joining us.
4: Thank you very much.
0: Future Proof with Jonathan McRae,
4: proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland, Sunday morning at 10.
0: On News Talk.